Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. Rich Schmidt, and we're here with Anthony Serini. We're at the Flaneur Winery in Carlton. It's June 29th, 2022. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, first question to get you started is why wine? Uh, oof. Great question. Um, I, as an in, like as a job, I don't think I had any plans of getting into wine. I had a an idea that I wanted to get into agriculture. And I had traveled to New Zealand on a few occasions and knew that it had a variety of microclimates and soils in a very small area. And I loved the country, so I thought that would be a cool place to learn more about agriculture uh, and being able to see a lot of different things in a small area. So my wife and I sort of did the quit your job things at the not a great time. like. 2009, so you know, <laughs> economy wasn't in the best shape, I guess. Uh, and then along that path, we ended up working on a, a vineyard, uh, Carrick, Carrick Vineyards, and I befriended the winemaker mostly because I was a rollerblader and he was a skateboarder, and he would take me to all the local skate parks. And so we would go hang out, uh, go skating after work or something, and just got to become friends. And he was my first mentor in the wine industry. And it was not what I expected at all when I entered it. I was sort of, I thought the wine industry was gonna be something different entirely. And then when I met him and then started meeting all his friends, I was like, oh, like, these are, I like these people. This is a cool thing. This is a lot of fun. my wife was working with me. She decided that she liked being a consumer more than working in the industry. Um, so that's where she sort of went back on her own career path. And then I just continued on with wine. <laughs> I like that. So let's back up for a second. We'll, come, we'll kind of pick that back up in a second. Tell me about life before wine. So where, where were you born and raised and what was kind of your path after school? Yeah, um, so I was born and raised just outside of Trenton, New Jersey. Um, when I was seven, I, I was born in October, so it's like I'm one of those started school a little early kids. When I was 17, I started college in Philadelphia. I went to Drexel. I thought I wanted to do criminal psychology. Um, at some point in time, over the course of that degree, I interned at the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office and learned that, that is not what I wanted to do. <laughs> and then I did a variety of jobs. I worked at a uh, medical billing uh, thing um, at the University of Pennsylvania. I worked at like a screen print company. Um, I tried to write. I still like writing, but it's like a different thing if you're trying to do it as a profession. Um, I was a yoga teacher for a while. I think that was one of the things that brought me, well, I was excited to bring me out to Oregon the first time I came out to Oregon before I was in wine. Um, 
Yeah, somewhere, yeah. And then that, along that path, I started getting into food. Philadelphia, while it's known for cheesesteaks and pretzels, has an amazing food scene. Uh, and so that food scene, farmers markets, restaurants, like is how I got into wine. Um, I had a lot of friends that worked in the in that industry. Um, I myself didn't actually make it to that industry, uh, <laughs> but that's kind of how I got interested in wine. Um, yeah. And then from there, yeah, just sort of grew. I like learning things. I think everything that I have ever been interested in, sometimes I can take it too far. I can be a little neurotic. <laughs> I like to dive into a subject. Um, hence, like, starting in the wine industry and then subsequently going back to school and getting a master's degree, like, after the fact. Usually you do that first. <laughs> yeah. So before we move on to the, that part of your education, I'm curious about, as, you, as wine became something in your life that you were curious about or excited about, tell me yeah. about how you did learn it. What was your kind of st style for learning about both wine as a subject and wine as a, as a beverage? I guess um, in the beginning, like everyone, it's just like white or red. Uh, and then at some point in time, I know I know what the wine is. It was I don't know the vintage. It was a Domaine Ostertag Riesling, um, Alsatian producer, and that was the first time that I was like, I want to know about this. Like this is not about white or red. This is just like this wine. I want to learn about this. And so I started doing some research on on Alsatian Riesling, um, and then from there I sort of thought of myself as a white wine drinker. Um, until I discovered Oregon Pinot, which I had never been to Oregon at that time, um, but Oregon Pinot was my favorite New World wine from when I lived back in Philadelphia. And then when I started working in the wine industry in New Zealand, I was in central Otago, which is also Pinot country. So it all sort of worked out that when I left New Zealand, uh, eventually making it back to the States, it was like, okay, going back to Oregon, like that's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> Yeah. But in terms of like other formal education, I mean, I just had friends in the industry and we would taste different bottles and it would just be trying to pay attention. Um, there was a, pro uh, not a producer, a wine shop called Moore Brothers that was in New Jersey and in Delaware. I don't know if they're still around or not, but they'd had a thing that was novel for me at the time where they kept track of everything you bought. So whenever you were excited about a bottle, um, you could go back and say like, hey, I had this like a month ago. It was really great. Like, what was it? And so that was sort of like my education was being able to like revisit things like that. And they would, they had knowledgeable staff that would teach me about some of the producers and stuff. Um, so yeah, it wasn't very formal. Um, and then working in vineyards in New Zealand, I started like picking up books in different people's houses um, and just sort of teaching myself things. But I didn't have like a hard science background. Um, so there are some things I didn't understand, but a lot of things you can pick up on the fly. <clears throat> you mentioned that the the industry and it wasn't wasn't what you were expecting. People, people what you're expecting. Yeah. Tell me about that kind of revelation for you and, and about the work itself. What did you think of the people as you got to know them? What did you think of the work itself? Um, the work itself was a little more physical than I had predicted, um, which I enjoyed. Uh, the people were much more down to earth than I expected. I think uh, <laughs> I have always thought of it as this like sort of wealthy thing. Um, whether that's like product of where I grew up or whatever. Like I think the only wines I was introduced to when I was younger was like 
my dad was Italian and just be like Sangiovese or Chianti, but never anything fancy, always like relatively inexpensive stuff. Sometimes there might be a wicker basket attached to the bottom. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So tell me about the kind of, did you have like an initial harvest experience or what was the first kind of experience in a winery? Uh, my first experience in a winery was when I was working in the vineyard, they just sort of took us in to do like a little primer of winery. And so it was like, here, like try a punch down, like see what this is like. Uh, yeah, and so it was just like a day in the winery after picking a bunch of grapes. Um, and then after that, my first experience making wine winery side was in spain we were uh woofing the willing workers on organic farms on a few places in spain near the ribera sacra that um, just produced a small amount of wine uh, one place made three barrels and the other place made 10 to 12 uh I'm trying to remember and so those were my first experiences like actually making wine in the winery side not being in a vineyard um, which was very good because it was like seeing it on the absolute smallest level, no machinery. Um, I think the place that had the 10 or 12 barrel thing, they shared the, where they had their winemaking space with where they hung their lamb. So that was, that was always pretty interesting. Um, but the wines were really interesting. Uh, one of the places had a vineyard that was heavily hit with disease. And so to make up the difference of the barrels that they had, we, uh, I climbed a bunch of trees and picked a bunch of grapes that were uh, grown from seed. So I couldn't tell you what they were, um, but this was in a region that was devastated during the Spanish Civil War, I guess, during the times of Franco. So there were stone posts that were on this hillside and the metal cordons were still left on and there were oak trees that were like 20 feet tall growing up. And the grapevines had all like left the cordon system and were just growing up the oak trees. And so it was a surreal thing. When I look back on it, I like, I didn't know as much as I know now, but I still knew that that was like, that was an established vineyard at one period of time. And now this is like the oak trees have grown up 20 feet tall, um, which is always like very cool, but also like kind of eerie. Um, yeah, so like making wine at a very rudimentary level and then coming to back to the States and going to or coming back to Oregon, working at Benton Lane, um, which is much larger facility. And so that was my first time working in a winery, much larger scale. Uh, yeah, I guess in New Zealand, I worked at Carrick and Peregrine doing vineyard stuff, seeing the wineries, but never like fully working in them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Benton Lane was my first like big like, oh, like, <laughs> this is a big, this is a large tank. <laughs> and there, I mean, it's a, it was a larger producer than either the facility at Peregrine that I had been near. I know they produce a lot more wine now um, and I don't think it's all made at that one place. So I'm not sure, yeah. <laughs> So you mentioned uh, coming back to Oregon. Then. So what, yeah. what, what was your first trip to Oregon? Uh, first, I visited Oregon in like 2007 or 2008, just to travel, visit friends, and see a new place. Um, 2010, we lived in. My wife and I lived in Portland. She was finishing her master's of education, and I was teaching yoga. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was just like moving from Philadelphia to Portland. Um, it felt like such a small city. It didn't really feel like a real city at the time. 
this is 12 years later and already now Portland feels like a real city all of a sudden. Uh, for the good and the bad of that, you know? <laughs> I guess crime rate being higher is one of the things that makes it feel more like an East Coast city to me, and that's not, not positive. <laughs> yep. So what prompted the move to Oregon? Uh, I think we were just ready for a change. Uh, yeah, neither, well, yeah, I wasn't super happy with my job. I knew I wanted to do something different. I was liking teaching yoga. Portland seemed like a good place for that. My wife wanted some to change things around and try something new. Um, we'd been in Philadelphia for a decade and we loved it, but it was just, I think, time for something new. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We had spent like five weeks driving and camping across country and Portland was definitely one of our favorite places. Um, yeah. And I always have to live within like two hours of the coast. It doesn't make any sense. I don't, it's not like for water sports or anything. It's just like a thing. I don't know. I grew up in New Jersey where nothing's too far from the coast. Lived in Philadelphia for a decade. Um, yeah, and then I just, something internal. It doesn't make sense, but it's just the way it is. I, <laughs> I couldn't live in the middle of any country, like the very center, totally landlocked, I don't know. <laughs> you never know, you might have to evacuate, I guess. To, yeah, yeah, see, right? I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of like subconscious reasons that maybe it makes sense for it, but I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> So you're back in Oregon in 2010 and living in Portland. Uh, yeah. What gets you back into wine at that point? Well, that's, so yeah, 2011 is when we were like, we're gonna go to New Zealand and uh, try to learn more about agriculture and see if that's where our future lies. Um, I'd been to New Zealand twice before, once for their their version of the X Games called X-Air. Um, it's like a rollerblade tour. Uh, traveling around the North Island and then ending in Wellington. Um, and then uh, my wife was always mad that I went without her. And then we ended up going there on our honeymoon in 2009. Uh, and we loved it. And then there was, we went on a couple wine tours when we were there. And our favorite winery from that wine tour is where we reached out to when we were down there and they just happened to have uh, a few of their employees leave right before we had called. And so they were like, if you can get here in the next, like, I don't remember what they said, if it was like 36 hours or something, then the job is yours. We were pretty far away, but we made it. And then, yeah. <laughs> so what, what, then what caused you at that point? You mentioned kind of your New Zealand experience. Yeah. What caused you to come back? Uh, oof. I don't think, we were there for, maybe eight or nine months. And I loved my time there, but I like towards the end, I was definitely like, I was just ready to come back to the States. I loved being there, but I didn't want to stay there full time. And then also like, I knew there was more to come. We went to Vietnam and Thailand after visiting some friends in Australia and then worked in Spain for three months. So it wasn't like, uh, we were just like, okay, ready to go home. It was like, okay, like we're gonna go see some more of the world, uh, continue our, our slow travel around the world, and then made it back to New Jersey, where we were both from, uh, and then, yeah, came back out to Oregon. <laughs> and that was intentional for me, because I was, 
I knew that I was going to pursue a future in wine, and as my favorite wines were from Oregon, and we loved it in 2010 when we had lived there. We just were over living in cities at that time. So I moved to Corvallis, not necessarily thinking about OSU. I had got a job at Benton Lane, and it was sort of like live in Eugene or live in Corvallis. And then it worked out living in Corvallis because after I after harvest, I stayed on and did some pruning for them and I got a job in one of the wine labs at OSU. And so that was how like that next chapter sort of started, was working in the wine labs, meeting students there, getting the science background that I didn't have, classes like organic chemistry and stuff. Um, and then uh, when I was working in the wine lab, the professors I was working for were sort of like, you know, you, you are qualified and you're doing well here, like you can apply and like do a master's degree. And it was like, why? would I do that? Like, that sounds really expensive. And they're like, well, if you, you know, you do the work and you, like, publish things, like, then, you know, you're, you're actually not paying money. Then <laughs> you, you get a stipend, like, as a grad student, if you, you get a GRE and a graduate research um, appointmentship or GRA, yeah. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so, um, yeah, then I did that, um, which was great. I mean, it was an awesome experience. I always kind of look back on it and think, um, I didn't have the confidence when I did my first degree to do the hard science stuff. I thought I would be bad at it. And then when I went back to school for it, I like had a purpose. I was like, I'm doing this to like learn more about wine. And I ended up being pretty good at science and really loved it. And I had no regrets, but I always thought like, if I had known this earlier on, I probably would have like done a master's degree like earlier, and, like done more science stuff when I was younger. Um, maybe I would have still ended up in wine through a more circuitous, or a, it still was a circuitous route, through a different circuitous <laughs> route, but yeah. So in that experience then at Oregon State, actually let's talk about Benton Lane first. I'm curious, oh, yeah. I'm curious about, you mentioned the kind of your first harvest in a, yeah. in a big place. Yeah. Tell me about that, what was that, what was that like? Uh, it was exhilarating, um, it was a good team atmosphere. Uh, it was the first time I think that I had had something that really like cut me off from everything else in the outside world because harvest can be very all-encompassing and especially if you're in a new place and you're just meeting new people and then it's like oh this is your life for a little bit. Um, it can be stressful but I found that I was good at it. Um, I guess I I think I am at my best when I am pushing myself uh, and not at my best when I have free as much free time <laughs> to just like procrastinate and stuff. <laughs> and so then tell us about the, you mentioned Oregon State experience, uh, the hard science is kind of becoming something you, you, you found yourself better at than you expected. Yeah. What else did you kind of take away from the, the higher level wine education? Um, I, th I mean, there was a, a lot, uh, just having the background science, uh, I think allows you to have a little bit better problem solving. Um, it's not that you absolutely need it to make wine, but it, it is helpful. Uh, and then half of my research was um, doing a lot of sensory science, which fit for my first degree is in psychology. So sensory science is a little bit more related in that realm. Um, so that I kind of took to a little bit better and I think it also gave me more confidence in my own palate participating in conducting research trials with winemakers and like just seeing how how it all like really worked and learning more about how 
the human brain perceives aromatics and mouthfeel, texture. Um, all of that gave me a better appreciation, but also built my own confidence to continue on in the career. Um, and then I had fun uh, doing things like, you know, presenting at conferences and stuff. I don't think of myself as a great public speaker, but um, forcing myself to do it was a positive experience. <laughs> it's not something I seek out, but <laughs> it was it was good while it lasted. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you can't avoid it. Yeah, yeah. It's a thing. <laughs> Yeah. As you were going through school, what did you have in mind for what you would do with your degree? What was your, what was, did you have a kind of a goal in mind? Uh, not exactly. I mean, I knew I wanted to be a winemaker. I didn't have a particular goal. I think I didn't have a full scope of things until I was in the industry fully um, about how much of a difference scale makes. Uh, working at a winery producing, you know, 20,000 cases versus, you know, 100,000 cases versus 7,000 cases, like it drastically changes the responsibility and what kind of wine you can produce. Um, yeah, at least in my experience. Mm -hmm. So I think I went into that side blind and I like doing the master's degree, not necessarily thinking of it as like, this is gonna be a leg up in the industry. I'd met enough people that like, I think in from a lot of producers, there's like a stigma about people who've spent too much time in school going into wine. Because um, admittedly, I knew a lot of other students who like, they thought they were too good to clean a drain or something. And it's like, that's a part of winemaking too, is doing all of these manual tasks. And as long as you are humble and see that that's equally important to like using your brain and doing all that stuff, I think, anyone can be successful in that realm, but anyone who lets their ego grow too big sometimes can be a negative thing. And then, um, yeah, I guess going to school and working harvest at the same time, uh, there was, uh, at the time, it was at Archery Summit, um, Kate Payne Brown was the assistant winemaker at the time, and she had said something to me about how like, you know, I was working very hard and I was getting very stressed out. I think I had either finals or midterms, um, and I was working harvest there and going to school and doing that, doing some research on at the same time. And she had kind of like, I don't know, she didn't sit me down, but she was like, if you can handle this, like everything else is gonna be easy. Like, don't stress out about it. Like, just know, like, if you're doing this, then, you know, if you're in charge at a winery, you have to keep track of all these things at the same time too. Like, it's not that dissimilar from taking midterms or finals and doing all that stuff. So um, that was a helpful piece of, uh, yeah, perspective. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you mentioned being at Archery Summit. What, what yeah. brought you there and what was, what were kind of, it was kind of your role and experience there? Um, so, I mentioned I worked at Benton Lane, um, the winemaker at Benton Lane at the time was Chris Maispink, and he left Benton Lane after that harvest and started working at Archery Summit. I had thought I was going to take 2013 vintage off and try to focus on school, and he called and asked if I would work for him at Archery Summit. So <laughs> then I, I never, I haven't taken a vintage off since. <laughs> yeah. So I worked there as an intern um, while I was in grad school. And then I got a, I worked at Ponzi for one harvest uh, after I finished grad school. And then I started working at archery full time after that. 
give me a, compa a comparison of the of those places. Obviously, some different 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 locations, different styles, different sizes. What what, what, For sure. what what did you kind of take away from each? What did you enjoy and, and learn from each of the places? Uh, it's a good question. <laughs> it's hard. I haven't thought about that in a while. I think. Um, also, I guess seeing different like. I guess Archery Summit produced a, a lot less wine than both Benton Lane and Ponzi. Um, at the time, Benton Lane was doing a different thing than what I understand they're doing now. So I think we were producing a lot, I, I mean, I don't want to say it was lower quality, it was just more quantity focused I think at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I know that they've subsequently started changing that. Um, and then going to archery was like very quality focused, not quantity focused. And I think Ponzi, for me at least, it was a very good like middle ground of doing both of those things and seeing that you can do both of those things uh, was was very educational. Um, yeah, and then just the layouts of buildings. I think there is a huge difference in all three of those places. Um, both Ponzi and Archery were designed as gravity flow wineries. Uh, Benton Lane is not. It was just like one functional building. I know now they have a second one and things have changed. I haven't been there in a while, so I'm not sure how it works now. Um, but yeah, it was uh, just like a box <laughs> and very simple and like kind of go, go, go. Um, and then Archery is a gravity-fed winery, but it's a gravity-fed winery that's also like integrated into the tasting experience. So like every time you do something, you kind of have to be mindful about you have consumers watching you. Um, so like you're spraying something down, you have to make sure you don't spray somebody in a suit with the hose, um, which, you know, Sometimes at the end of a time, like a long, grueling day, you're just trying to get stuff done. You're like, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, and then Ponzi's gravity fed, but like it's kind of separate. People come through every now and again, but it wasn't a tasting space for consumers mostly. Um, so yeah, I think I've learned a lot about different layouts now and now learning about a new layout, which we'll, Grant and I will learn about together this year, I guess. <laughs> We'll come back to that. Don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, as you're kind of going through that, did you find yourself uh, drawn to a certain style of winemaking or wine or a kind of philosophy around winemaking? Did you kind of find yourself developing your own sort of yes. Um, yes, but also I think I saw how different, depending on where your fruit is coming from, uh, there's not just one easy answer. Um, I. When I, at Benton Lane, I guess, uh, we were also making wine for a, a, another client at the same time. So they were making wine in a very different way than the Benton Lane property was. And then coming to Archery Summit was making it in a different style from either of those. But then I was at Archery from, even though it was as an intern to full-time, I was at Archery from 2013 all the way until just January <laughs> or February uh, in 2022. So I've seen a lot of different ways that people have made wine at Archery because um, under Chris Maispink's tenure, he changed his winemaking style from 2013 through the 2017 vintage. And then when Ian Birch started, he changed things subtly as well. Um, and I think that was probably the most influential thing for me while it was still predominantly Dundee Hills fruit like seeing the differences 
from what was changed along those those paths. Um, yeah, I guess that coupled with like my experience in grad school with sensory science, I, I don't like to think of like there's one right answer. I, I, I know what I like, but I never like to proselytize as like this is the best way. There are certain things I think are probably, I would probably say that about, but I, that's like circumstantial. You'd have to like throw one at me and I'd be like, yeah, yeah, no, don't do that. <laughs> So with Archer in particular, obviously a, a, pretty, a pretty big legacy in Oregon Pinot Noir, and you, as you said, mentioned working for a couple of different uh, well-known winemakers there. How did you see the style there change, and what was kind of your, how did your role change during the time you were there? Um, I mean, I guess it started off as an intern, so you do a little bit of everything, but it's mostly focused on the harvest time. Mm -hmm. um, I would come back every now and then when they needed help with bigger tasks and bottling. Um, but still it wasn't like the day-to-day. -day. And then when I started working there full-time and you get into like the day-to-day -day during the slow season, it's a very different world um, than harvest time. It's a lot slower, um, which is good. I think everybody needs a break. You can't always be go, go, go. Uh, <laughs> but I think that was a thing that I had, uh, I needed to see that I didn't fully uh, appreciate coming into it as like you work a bunch of harvests and it's always like very busy very go 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 and then you kind of get to the downtime and you start focusing on other things whether it's like events or uh, maintaining sulfur levels or uh, um, I don't know interacting with sales and marketing because um, that's another part of it is like what information can you give to help sell the wine to different markets, which changes depending on your brand and depending on who's selling your wine. Um, yeah, I think that was a good introduction to that side of the wine industry for me, um, which, I mean, I'm still learning. Yeah, Every brand has their own like niche that they fill in for their consumers, and I think finding how you can help out on the sales side is changes depending on, on that brand. Mm -hmm. yep. So by the end of the, by the end of your time there, uh, what was your kind of what was your kind of main role? Oh uh, yeah, I guess at the end of my time there, I was the enologist. Um, so I don't know. I think the enologist is one of the like <laughs> it's it's a weird title. Uh, depending on what winery you go to, it can be a little bit of everything. I know some wineries the enologist spends all their time in the lab. Some wineries, the enologist is basically the, a winemaker, um, and some wineries, it's a little bit of everything. I feel like my role was a little bit of everything. I was the only one that did lab stuff, but I also did cellar stuff, and I made some wine there. Um, so I, I was lucky uh, that I got to stick it out to getting that role and being able to do all of those things um, and seeing all the different avenues and facets of the industry that I could at the time. I mean, there's still more to learn. I think if I ever get in a place where I don't think there's more to learn, then that's a problem. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Did I catch you say that you, you made some wine there? Uh, yeah, the 25th anniversary wine um, was sort of a nice olive branch. When Ian first started, he had given me and uh, Corey Beyer, who's longtime uh, winemaker there is the associate winemaker currently it was sort of um, a 
when Ian first started, he had given both of us the option of just like picking our favorite block from whatever vineyard and making a wine from it and seeing how it goes. Whether it's going to end up as its own thing or put into another blend or whatever, that was undetermined. Um, so I, for me, the pick was easy. Uh, we have these, there's this old vine, um, Pinot, uh, own-rooted at Arcus that was planted in 1973. Um, my favorite block, and so I was like, I'm gonna do that one, and I'm gonna do it in one of my favorite fermenters. It was a concrete cube, and the wine turned out really well. Um, I didn't put a lot of oak on it, because just sort of trying to celebrate the old vines, and then somewhere down the line, it just ended up working out that this was gonna be our 25th anniversary wine, so. That was my the one wine I got to make from start to finish there. Uh, turned out really well, I was really happy about it. Um, so yeah, that was a great opportunity. Um, did not want to squander it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was the process like, being the one kind of in charge for the, of, of that wine? Uh, I mean, it was great. I think I had been there long enough at that time to be like comfortable with everything. I. There was like a little bit of stress about it later when they had said that it might be the 25th anniversary wine because at, in the beginning I didn't know what it was going to be. I was just trying to make the best wine I could. And then when it was said that this is what's going to happen to it, it was like, oh, okay. <laughs> now what? <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I couldn't have been happier about it. So yeah. <laughs> So as you mentioned, you're, you're new, you have a new, new spot here at Flaneur. Yep. Tell me how that came about and what, what prompted you to come here. Um, I mean, I think I, I had a great experience at Archery Summit, but I was there for a long time. I had learned what I could there, and Grant was looking for an assistant, and this seemed like a great place to continue continue learning and to try to make some great wine. Um, I've loved the wines that he has made before, and loved what has been happening with the brand. And then I was very excited to work at a place making some sparkling wine. It's something that I was very passionate about but had no uh, experience with. So that was another one of the things that drew me here. And then I've always loved uh, Chihila Mountain fruit. Um, so we have two vineyards here, Chihila Mountain and Ribbon Ridge, um, but the majority of our fruit comes from the Chihila Mountain property. So those were all factors, I guess, that brought me over. <laughs> I know, I know it's still, you're still young here in this yeah. place, but tell yeah. me about your impressions so far. Uh, I mean, so far it's been very exciting. I just, we went through our first uh, round of blending for sparkling and then tirage bottling. And then we just finished blending trials for our Pinot, Chard, and then we have a little bit of Alagate and Grunevet Lahner um, and Pinot Meunier. And all of those are gonna get bottled well, not all of this. Some of, most of those are going to get bottled before harvest. Um, some of those are going to get over vintage. And so, uh, so far it's been great. Um, just sort of dealing with the finishing touches of this building, which uh, from my understanding has been a long time coming and it's very exciting, but it's not totally finished yet. So we're just hoping everything will be done before harvest. That's, <laughs> yeah. It's mostly done. Just a few finishing touches. <laughs> As always, right? As yeah, always. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so tell me about your role here so far and what you will kind of understand it to be. Um, it's a good question. I, I'm still learning it, I think. I'm understanding it to be. I mean, there's only two of us, so uh, it's a lot more, not that my role wasn't hands-on at Archery, but there were four people in production at Archery. Now there's only two of us, so it's 
a, I guess maybe we might produce slightly less wine than we were doing at my time at archery, um, at least the last couple of vintages, and yeah, just doing it with less people, I guess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's a little bit more all hands on deck, but not, not too much. And you mentioned, obviously, new building, first harvest coming up. Yep. Uh, what are you anticipating for this harvest? Uh, I am pretty excited about it. It's Everyone's been concerned about frost things, but, um, you know, we're going out there, and there's inflorescence. There's a lot of flowering. I wouldn't say that we're at 50% yet, so I'm not going to say we're totally flowering, but um, we're very close. Um, I know that there's a lot of concern about how late the vintage is just because of disease pressure, but my favorite wines in Oregon have been in vintages like that. So um, I'm very excited for it. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Good. Yeah. <laughs> Not everybody has been, so it's exciting to hear that. 2010 is like my favorite wines I've had. Uh, like blanket statement I know is I I don't like to have just like favorites but I keep coming back and like those are my favorite wine memories of of Oregon wines and so I'm very excited I know it's not no vintage is exactly the same but I have to say it's a little bit similar so so while you were at Archer Summit, obviously you were working there during during 2020. Uh, I want to yep. talk a little bit about 2020 because it's uh, obviously yep. a, it was an interesting year all around. So I'm yep. curious between sort of the pandemic part of things and the, the smoky harvest part of things. Tell me about the year for you, uh, how, you how you got through, and, and the kind of the adjustments you had to make to sort of get out the other side. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a loaded one uh, for me. Uh, Let's see. I guess everyone's very excited about the vintage in the beginning. Smoke started, we knew it was gonna be a problem. Um, we had some grapes we had pulled in in the beginning that we were like, okay, at least we have this, and then some other stuff that really brought us back to, uh, for me, it was like bringing me back to research, um, and then talking to some friends who had dealt with more smoke in other regions. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we did a good job um, of still making a good product. Um, it was a nail biter. I know a lot of places, depending on your site or just risk factor, decided not to make wine or not to make Pinot. Um, and I think there's been a lot of like uh, large opinions on both sides of the fence there. And I think in the end, it all happened so fast and furious, I can't get mad at anybody's decision. Um, like here, I, the sites maybe were a little bit later ripening, so they did not make any Pinot Noir. Um, we made white wines and sparklings at Flanor, and I think for here it was the right decision. Um, at Archery, we made some Pinot. We didn't make all of it, but we made some, and I think it turned out really well. I think our Chardonnays turned out really well, um, but we made less wine, and I think that was the right decision. And I think, I don't know, I hear a lot of people get mad about it in all avenues, and it's easy to forget how stressful it was in the middle of it. Um, and I think it was, yeah, I don't fault anybody for their, <laughs> whatever their decisions were. Um, that being said, the other part of 2020 for me was that the last day of pulling in fruit at Archery, my mom died. So for me, 2020 is all bad, uh, aside from, you know, COVID and the stress of the smoke then having death in the family, um, yeah. Not my favorite year. 
Yeah. It's a long, tough year. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned part of 2020, the, the smoke part will kind of take you back to the research, as you mentioned, kind of thinking yeah. about that. I'm curious from that and from kind of your understanding of other people in the, in the area, uh, how do you feel the, the results of 2020 wines were? And, and if it happens again, how do you feel, well, how will we do next time? Uh, I think, <clears throat> oof, that's tough. Um, I think a lot of people did really well. Some people, I, it's a little too smoky for me. Um, going from the sensory side of things, uh, you learn that not everyone is very sensitive to the compounds of smoke taint. Um, I unfortunately have found that I am very sensitive to the compounds of smoke taint, um, which was an interesting uh, experience for me dealing with blending of things um, and trying to meter it, like I can perceive smoke at a very low quantity and trying to figure out where most people can't and blend a wine to get into that realm if something does have that impact. Because um, I mean, it's, it, is, it is there, it's true. There are things you can do to mitigate it, but it's not a perfect solution. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I I think that it's important to note like how how many options there are moving forward like if there's another smoky vintage I think it'll come down to how impactful it is so like how much particulate is actually in the air and then at what time of the growing season mm -hmm. um, yeah I guess that'd be maybe an unpopular opinion but I think if 2020 happened all over again like depending on your site, I wouldn't be mad at somebody who didn't make wine. And then for other people, I think you try and mm -hmm. you see what you could do. But then that all ties into like, what's economically viable for your brand. You don't want a brand to die because of this. Mm. I think it gets a little more tricky than just simple right and wrong. Yeah. So, you had mentioned before coming to Oregon that one of the one of the draws here for you was was having had Oregon wine and being excited about it. Yeah. So I'm curious when, once you once you got here, tell me about your first impressions of of the wines and of the people as you started to meet meet the industry. Yeah. Um, I think I loved the spirit of camaraderie. Uh, I wasn't fully prepared for that. Um, I didn't realize how much sharing of not only like information and ideas, but just like equipment and stuff that there would be. So that's been pretty awesome. Um, I think the other big thing for me was I, I think I said earlier, like I thought of myself in the beginning as like mostly liking white wines, but I never really took to Chardonnay until moving to Oregon. And then moving to Oregon, I started to really appreciate Oregon Chard. Um, so that's something that I became very passionate about. Um, my master's degree is all in research on Chardonnay. Uh, and in, when I first got here, I did not think that that was gonna be a thing that was gonna change. Um, yeah, Pinot's still my first love in Oregon, but I love Oregon Chardonnay and yeah, just happy to see the continual momentum and growth of, of that <laughs> throughout more than just, just the local area of Oregon. So that's obviously something that has changed since you've been here, the, the kind of growth of Chardonnay and of yes. sparkling. Yeah. Uh, what else have you seen change in the industry since you've been part of it? Um, I mean, 
a lot of brands have changed, whether it's like brands consolidating, getting bigger, brands disappearing, which is sad. I think there's another sort of wave of uh, new producers. Um, I guess my friends we had talked about earlier being some of them, and De La Boo and Cho Wines, uh, <laughs> which has been awesome to see. Um, right now, I think there is a weird like hum in the air about what's coming next. I don't think anybody is like knows exactly what's coming next, but I think everyone feels like there's a period of growth coming. Um, with that is going to come growing pains. There's going to be positives and there's going to be negatives. Um, but I feel like something is going to change. I don't know what it is. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of, you know, a lot of big brands, international brands, like moving in. Um, and then there's a lot of new small producers growing up. Um, and then there's still new areas where people are thinking of planting. Um, and you know, as climate change is a thing, uh, there is new areas that maybe will become viable that maybe weren't uh, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. So something is coming, but you're not sure what. Yeah, yeah. I guess I, I, I don't deal in a lot of absolutes. Uh, <laughs> I kind of like synthesize different things in my brain. Um, <laughs> I, I like to pull in information and incorporate it into the uh, grand scheme of things. Um, so I, I have a hard time like talking about things in isolation sometimes. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I know things are changing. Um, I think it, like 2020 was a big change for the industry too. A lot of people started focusing more on distribution, not just not with smoke, but just with COVID. I mean, tasting rooms were closed and a lot of brands tried to shift their focus to some distribution. And even though now DTC is growing again, I think some brands still are trying to keep the, a foot in that distribution area too. Um, so I think there's a little bit of a change in that. Um, I don't know if that, I don't have any numbers or data for that. Like what, if anything's changed on like the national or international market in terms of like where Oregon wine is being sold. Um, I would like to know, I guess. I don't, <laughs> I don't have that information. <laughs> if you had to, if you had to guess, or if you were, were to look ahead, what do you see the industry looking like down the road? What are some things maybe you're looking forward to? And, or, and maybe uh, conversely, some things maybe you're fearful of? Um, oof. I mean, <laughs> looking forward to, I, I'm, I'm happy that the industry seems relatively stable. I guess hearing stories of people who've been here longer than I have, um, it sounds like it wasn't always as stable as it is now. Um, so that is, that is very good. I am uh, <laughs> um, always looking forward to growth of sort of the consumer appeal of Oregon wine. Um, I guess I am excited to see some more, it doesn't have to be high-end restaurants, but more food-focused things pairing with Oregon wine. Um, as anything in alcohol, it's unhealthy when you just look at it as alcohol. 
Um, when alcohol is seen as a part of food culture, it is just better for everyone. And so I'm happy that that is becoming more of a thing in Oregon. Um, I think people see it more with high-end dining, which is awesome. Like I'm, I love going to fancy restaurants and stuff and having awesome wine experiences with food and stuff, but it's important for it not to, just to be high-end. Um, so it's cool to see like new farms doing bigger and better things and just more like uh, consumer-friendly restaurants and stuff coming around that like still have awesome wines. Um, wines that have a little bit more personality and not just, you know, the cheapest possible thing they can get their hands on. Um, <laughs> I think those things are very exciting for me. Um, just coming from a place like Philadelphia where there's like an established food scene. I know there's a food scene in Portland, but I do think it's changing and just the general food scene around the Willamette Valley and Oregon, I think, is growing and getting better. Um, we've always had amazing farmland and amazing produce and meat and seafood, um, but I think the culinary scene itself is, is getting better, which is exciting. Um, things I'm worried about, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, try not to think about it too much. I guess I'm worried about how expensive things are becoming. That's, that's a thing. While that's, I know that's a part of just what's happening in the economy right now. Um, there's another side to that of, you know, just as things get bigger and better, it just makes land prices and winery, winery equipment, uh, all of that get more expensive. That's, that's a little worrisome, I guess, seeing how far that'll go. Yeah. You mentioned climate change. What what do you see, if anything? What do you? How do you see that changing the industry locally as you look ahead? Uh, I mean, I I guess the the fear is that we'll see more more smoke impact. Right? Everyone's afraid of the the risk of forest fires. Um, the other side of things is just like slow changes in viticulture. I don't think we're at a place where we need to rethink the cultivars yet. Uh, I know that's like a thing where people look at projections and you see like how hot things are supposed to become down the line. And I don't know, I, I don't think that's something that I've been thinking about lately. I know we have some new cultivars planted, but they're not necessarily planted for changing climate. They're more planted as like something something new to play with and craft something fun out of. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of different viticultural techniques that maybe will have to come into play. Um, while, I mean, it's a big thing with our vineyards, we're non-irrigated. Um, and I think that's a thing that like is gonna become a large discussion moving forward, whether or not everyone can remain non-irrigated or whether, uh, yeah. Maybe we should stick to the areas that you can grow without irrigation. It's it's an open. It should be an open dialogue, I guess. So, as you look ahead for yourself, what what comes next for you? Uh, kind of short term, <laughs> long term. Uh, yeah, anything you're excited to do uh, have on the horizon? I mean, I'm excited to have my first full full vintage here. Um, as I started in February here, uh, so. I've been helping blending these wines, but I haven't participated in a full harvest here. So I'm very excited for that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know long-term. I mean, I've always been pretty clear of like, my goals are just to be a winemaker in the Willamette Valley. Um, 
I don't have any like big plans to do anything soon with any of that obviously just kind of keep learning keep working and <laughs> keep moving forward with that um, yeah I guess I'm just excited about harvest this year <laughs> about that time you start getting excited about harvest everyone was really worried with the frost and now we have all of these inflorescence and flowers happening and it's it's looking positive so now <laughs> now we can have like just excited to see how the rest of the growing season goes so if someone were to ask for your advice or your words of wisdom on joining the Oregon wine industry, what, what would you tell them? Um, it's hard. I feel like I need, I, uh, I mean, yes. <laughs> I, I, know it's, I, I think winemaking isn't for everyone, but at the same time, there's different types of wine producers out there. So maybe you're not cut out for some of the manual labor and there's a production facility where you don't have to do as much manual labor. Like it, it all sort of changes depending on the winery and the scale and the style of wine they're making. Um, I think that it's important for people to work around a little bit and experience different ways of making wine um, and find where they really fit in, not just where they have an idea of where they want to fit in. Um, I mean, it's like anything, find what your, your skills actually are. And, and, keep going in that direction. <laughs> all right, that's all the questions that I have oh. for you. Anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't uh, cover here that we should have covered? I don't know. It's <laughs> a good answer. Yeah, yeah. Probably. I'm sort of like in the zone of like following the narrative of the questions and now like, yeah, good. I don't know. <laughs> all right, well, hopefully we cover what we needed to cover. Yeah, yeah. Feels like, all right. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing, hosting us here and sharing your stories with us and uh, go ahead and let you off the hook. Yeah, hopefully that was mildly entertaining for someone. <laughs> <laughs> Set the lowest possible bar and try to clear it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.